Hi everybody, it's Wrong Term Memory and it's me Jack joining me as always is Colin. Colin, how are you mate? I'm good mate, yeah, very good, thank you. Enjoyed last week's show. Um, it was good to go into a bit of a deeper dive, unexpected deeper dive into some of the stuff and some of the people that aren't in the Hall of Fame yet. So good to be back doing part two this week. Well that's it, yeah, last week we left you with a sort of more, I was going to say morally dubious or like a story we're never going to know the truth to and that was Sam Cook's story. And we're going to be starting with um, Fats Domino this week. Now, we're going to get this in early, right at the start, let's be honest, because we know if we put an advert at the end, people aren't listening, they turn it off. So we're going to say this week, you should definitely be going to davidcoxbutchers.co.uk to order any of your really tasty meats, you know, the stuff from the the, the smoky wardrobe, uh, all that sort of stuff. But um, like we mentioned last week, um, if you were still listening, they do sort of low-fat stuff as well, so they do call They do, yeah. They've got a whole less than 5% range, things like square sausage, mince, even burgers and stew. Um, I've tried a bunch of this stuff from other places before, and you can usually taste the difference with this stuff, but the, the lower-fat content with this stuff, it actually is really good. You you don't feel as if you're kind of... Just, you don't feel as if you're missing out. Um, also got a great range of some of normal-friendly meals as well, things like Cajun chicken, um... Chinese beef, uh, Mexican beef, peri peri chicken, and my favourite, salt and pepper chicken. Um, you can mix and match a bunch of those, and it's all healthy, prepared on site, good food, which isn't going to do you any harm. So well worth checking out at davidcoxbutchers.co.uk. And um, if only Fats Domino had done the same. Well, that's it. Fats Domino, right. Uh, again, doing a little bit of research here, I, I found a, an interesting article somewhere, like Vulture or something like that, um, and you can, I think you can only read one article per month unless you're subscribed on there or whatever. And this was the article I think I read from that. It was pretty interesting about Fats Domino. Um, and uh, the, the title of the article was Fats Domino was the grandson of slaves. Um, again, one of the major figures in the development of rock and roll known for his er- rollicking uh, piano playing and hit songs such as Blueberry Hill and Ain't That a Shame. So to put things into a little bit of perspective about Fats Domino, Colin, um, he was born only 65 years after the end of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. So only 65 years basically after slavery was... The Emancipation Proclamation, as far as I know, wasn't a total abolishment of slavery anyway, but before that sort of Abe Lincoln, basically, all black and white stuff, Colin, he's only born 65 years after that shit, so like he's still like this it's still entrenched in a lot of American society and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of unsurprising then that his dad had come from a family of uh, Haitians um, who had first set foot in America basically as slaves. So I obviously can't imagine that, like your, your parents being slaves or whatever, um, or your grandparents being slaves. It must be, it must have had a sort of impact on your outlook. It's, yeah, it must be horrendous. Like it's you're born into a situation where I don't imagine you see an easy way out of it, or you you kind of think that you're trapped in that sort of a situation, and your children are trapped in it, their children will be trapped in it, and you don't see a way out of it. So for him to come around when that those memories and those sort of feelings in his family were still so real, then it's I bet his family have got stories to tell. I bet there's some history there going there, and when you when I hear the name Fats Domino, I think about 
him playing the piano, I think about kind of classic rock and roll and stuff like that. I don't associate him with family ties that go back like that, mm-hmm. but they clearly do. And it, it's just a, it's, it's just a strange thing that me and you will never ever get our heads around or understand Jack, but it's, it's just quite an awful thing to think about. Yeah. And obviously his parents were, they wanted like, like a lot of parents, they wanted to, the best for their kid. They wanted to see if he was creative and the, the thing that basically sparked his creative side was uh, a piano that his family actually inherited when he was 10 years old. Um, so captivated by it that his parents basically decided that it needed to be moved into the garage because it was a bit of a pain in the ass that he was, <laughs> he was playing it all the time, you know, <laughs> but he was learning it and he was getting really, really good at it. Now, last week, you sort of mentioned about Fats Domino's and how he got his nickname. Yes. Um, this is the story... You take this one in because you, you you thought it was something to do with chubby checkers, but so what I yeah what I said was Fats Domino was a piss take of chubby checker. I think it might be the other way around. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Um. But there's a few different stories about how Fats Domino got his nickname and it ultimately led to his breakout hit. Um. In 1949, he was signed to a record contract, and that's when he and his longtime songwriting partner David Bartholomew wrote a song called "The Fat Man," which sold more than a million copies uh, within just a few years. Um, so I think it all came from from that song. Um, he might not have the same sort of name recognition as someone like Elvis Presley, but it's kind of hard for us to stress just how important he was to shaping that genre as a whole. Even Elvis himself said in the 1957 interview, a lot of people seem to think that I started this business, I was rock and roll, but it was here a long time before I came along. And let's face it, I can't sing it like Fats Domino can, and I know that. So... Name or no name, he was the man for early rock and roll. And if you get that kind of accolade from Elvis, Jack, there's not really a better place to get it from, is there? Well, not I. That's it. That's it. You know, you've got to remember that back in when Fats Domino was in his in his prime and his heyday, basically, the USA still would have been pretty mostly segregated, and there was Jim Crow laws were still a thing then. Um, and Rick Coleman wrote Fats Domino's uh, and the Lost. Dawn of Rock and Roll says that Domino was one of the first and most important artists who kicked down the very, at the time, physical barrier between between black and white. Basically, no, I mean he would go, he would he would do shows. Basically, that the like the the whites would be down the stairs, or the, the the blacks would be down the stairs, and the whites would be up the stairs in the balconies to watch him. And I think kicked off like people would be throwing bottles down and stuff like that. So it was very much physical barriers back then as well it wasn't just like a when I say just a no downing it wasn't just like a people's thoughts and stuff like that there was like physical barriers but he um, he was right there at the, the forefront at the time as a black man yeah and obviously rock has always had a bit of a reputation among those who just don't get it and that sort of thing but mm-hmm. if you think about a Fats Domino concert a guy sitting playing the piano it might seem like the most the, the least and the most inoffensive thing in the world, I should say, just it's just a guy playing a piano. Yeah. But he did a gig in July the seventh, nineteen fifty six, at the Paloma Gardens Ballroom in San Jose, and that was the very first sort of rock and roll riot that yeah. happened. It's crazy, man. And I think that might have been the show I was talking about there because I think there was a bit of disruption, and then some of the white guys were throwing bottles and stuff down to the the lower balcony, and it created a bit of a a bit of a riot, basically. Um, when like like you say, it's just going to see a guy play a bit of, bit of piano and, and sing some songs, you know. Um, why why don't we remember Fats Domino's like we remember Elvis, basically? Um, there's a guy called Joe Laurel who's a filmmaker. Uh, he actually made a film about Domino and he, 
he mentioned in Rolling Stone. Um, he was just being forgotten because of his shyness, basically, and the fact that he lived a very private, uncrazy life. The man was on the road for 40 years, but he's not lighting the piano on Farah. He's not marrying his cousin at 13. Of course, his extreme shyness is the reason why he was forgotten. Um, with Domino, there was none of the jail time, none of the controversy. Um, and when he wasn't playing music, he was man after your own heart, con cooking, basically making cooking, nice, tasty yeah. steaks and stuff like that. So that's kind of <laughs> why we don't um, we don't remember him. He, he he's one of the few that we're covering that's not like a fucking maniac, but um, some life on the road for forty years, you know, doing his thing. So yeah, he made a good living for it, and you know what? He's probably one of the happiest out of all of them because he didn't have all that shit going on. Yeah. Um, but you're you're right. You probably won't get a biopic of him. Um, it's not an interesting story. Um, he's just a guy that made music and had a bit of a boring life outside of it. Maybe the the Ed Sheeran of his time. Even the only difference is Ed Sheeran's music shit. <laughs> now there is that. I um, I let you take this one because it's a short one. I could I couldn't find a hell of a lot about the Everly Brothers because. Again, you, you kind of got this picture in your head of the Everly Brothers as being these really clean-cut brothers who sing Unchained Melody and shit like that. So um, Bye Bye Love, Wake Up Little Susie, again, were, were sort of songs that they've defined rock and roll back in the day. But they, they, they did have their qualms as well, Colin. Um, they did. Um, aye, they were, they were absolutely full of gear. Um, they were both of them addicted to amphetamines, um, Don in particular, uh, his was worse. He was taking Ritalin and he was addicted to that for three years, uh, which only ended when he suffered a nervous breakdown and was hospitalised to treat the addiction. Um, the mainstream media at the time did not report that either brother was addicted. Um, when he come in, Don collapsed in England in mid-October 1962. Reporters were told that he had food poisoning and when the tabloid suggested he'd taken an overdose of pills, his wife and his brother insisted that he was just suffering physical and nervous exhaustion. And Don's poor health ended that British tour. He returned back to the USA, leaving Phil to carry on with Joey Page, their bass player, taking his place in the band. So it's, I think that's quite interesting that those issues with drugs and stuff were going on. But back then, you could sort of cover stuff up and the tabloids would almost go along with it for you and stuff like that. Whereas now... There were pictures of him overdosing on TMZ, weren't there? Aye, somebody would have their phone out videoing him taking speed, yeah, definitely. Or like him on a come down or something, or in a bad way at a party, there'd be, some, there'd be something on video for sure. But yeah, um, I suppose like tabloids would probably front door these people back then, you know, they'd just go chat, yeah. with, chat their door and see like, what happened to Don. And they're obviously going to say, ah, he's, he's, he's just... He's just an he's, he's just an he's, he's just shattered, basically. Right, <laughs> um, like Buddy Holly. He, he's one of the he's one of the guys I've heard of as well because I'm not really as people that have been listening to the show for many years will know I'm not really a big music guy. But uh, we, we we just look Buddy Holly, another inductee in 1986. <laughs> <Songs> <laughs> such as, That's not Buddy Holly. <laughs> I, I know it's not. I know, but That's they were singing about, yeah, I know, but they were singing about Buddy Holly, weren't they? Fair enough, so, yeah, okay. Aye, they were singing about him. I know it's Weezer. Um, Weezer. Um, shit. I wonder if they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Have they been about for long enough? Don't know. Mm, um, I don't know. Anyway, Peggy Sue, and that'll be the day, basically. So, Buddy Holly, um, pretty big deal, um, but he did kind of start early bells, um, opening for Elvis Presley. Uh, by the time he hit high school, Buddy had been playing guitar, um, for quite a while, and by 1953, when he was only 17, he was playing regularly on the radio in the country in Western Jewry, Buddy and Bob, 
Um, Bob was a guy <laughs> such called, a shit name, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Buddy and Bob. It's just he's just a it's just our names, aye. Um, yeah. That was Bob Bob Montgomery, uh, who's just his pal for school, basically. Uh, and then in February 1955 at the Fairpack Coliseum in Lubbock, Buddy and Bob opened for Elvis um, with Holly Boring Presley's Martin Guitar for the occasion. Um, and the pair would then open for Presley twice more that year. So, you know, like like when you went to see bands and stuff like that, like you, you will have seen lots of support bands that probably never got anywhere but if you were supporting Elvis back in the day you probably had something about you I'd imagine you know what I mean there was oh, something absolutely. there it's not like when you see fucking let me see I can't, I can't even remember any of the support bands like that, that I've seen over the years and if any of them ever went on to do big things because you know how they normally like if you were going to a gig in Glasgow they would normally get like a local band as the, like, mm-hmm. the sort of first support basically no I can't think of I know, <laughs> right, people will, I'd imagine most people aren't Twin Atlantic fans, right? But um, I knew one of the boys' sisters. They did support the Smashing Pumpkins. And oh, that's, okay. And they went on to be a success within, like, almost within Glasgow, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and sort of, they, they, if they go on a tour, it's uh, the Carlin Academy and then maybe Inverness or something. But, um, I have, I, um, off the top of my head, can't remember any support acts that then went on to blow the world away. I, like, I can't say, oh, I've seen Oasis one time in 1992 when they supported some kind. Have you ever seen anybody before they sort of blew up? Uh, I went and saw the Stereophonics once, and uh, the support act for the Stereophonics was uh, a band called Keen. Right, uh, okay. Who, at the time, I'd never heard of them, never seen them before. They they were different because they didn't have a guitar. That was that was their gimmick. It was a gap more a piano band than a guitar band, and they sounded okay. Um, they then got relatively big, relatively famous, and their music was fucking dire. It was. Uh, but I remember seeing them at first supporting the Stereophonics. Um, other than that, I saw the Arctic Monkeys at Barfly in Glasgow when they were still just a MySpace band. Um, but they weren't supporting them. They don't support them. That's quite a big one, I suppose, because they really fucking went sort of stratospheric pretty quickly. Yeah, I'd like to say that I was this cool guy with my finger on the pulse and all that sort of stuff, but I absolutely wasn't. My mate Chris told me that he had two tickets for it and did I want to go with him? And I went, aye, all right. Mm-hmm. And I saw their MySpace page that day and went to the gig that night sort of thing. <laughs> but it was it was cool. And to be fair, I've loved Arctic Monkeys ever since, and I still do. So it's, it's, it's a good one to say I was at because it was before, it was just before they hit. They were just MySpace famous at the time. Right, okay. We mentioned the song uh, Peggy Sue, Colin, but you know, I had an original name if you want to tell us about that. Yeah, so this, I mean, there's there's nothing actually in this story that's ultimately creepy, but I still think it's a little bit creepy. So Peggy Sue was originally called Cindy Lou. Um, single was released in September the 20th, 1957, and it was first called Cindy Lou, uh, named after his niece um, called Cindy Lou Cater. Um, right. However, Jerry Allison the cricket's drummer who co-wrote the song with No Holly and Norman Petty, basically managed to get him to change it and name it after his girlfriend, Peggy Sue Guerin. Um, Alison and Peggy Sue did eventually get married. Sadly, though, they divorced in 1965. I just think it's a wee bit questionable, Jack, naming a song, that a song that could easily be then be transferred to be about your girlfriend, to be named after your niece is a little bit iffy. Yeah, I, I I I can't say that I know like the lyrics and stuff. 
off the top of my head. I don't know if there's anything weird Let's and se- sexualised in it. Like, see if you can find some of the like. And if there is sort of lyrics about it, like, oh, Peggy Shoes riding me like there's no tomorrow, then I it's a little bit creepy. Wanted to call it Cindy Lou first, but we might just be jumping the gun. Maybe it's just a song about a, a, a nice girl, you know, or something. I don't yeah, know. maybe it is. Maybe it is. Let's, let's have a look. Let's have a wee look. We'll do this live. Right, I've, right? Right, I've got them here. It's loading. So, right. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you'd know why I feel blue. Without Peggy, my Peggy Sue, oh, well, I love you, gal. Yes, I love you, Peggy Sue. Um, my heart yearns for you, Peggy Sue. Mm. Pretty, 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 Peggy Sue. I right. need you, Peggy Sue. Okay. <laughs> I love so rare and true, oh, Peggy Sue. Right, okay. Um, <laughs> Let's keep oh, talking. well, I love you, I love you, gal. And I want you, Peggy Sue. Yeah, he should never have been naming it after his niece, man. That's <laughs> fucking bizarre. Right, okay. You, you saw laser in that, man, pretty quickly. Yeah. Right? And for good yes, reason. And, yeah, I'm glad we investigated that. That was fine. We were right to call that out. Yeah, um, that never made number one. Uh, he only had one number one hit. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine because if you're into that type of music, there's a lot of Buddy Holly songs that are classics, basically, but only one topped the US charts. And it was a song called That'll Be The Day in 1957. And it also managed to hit the top spot in England as well. Um, not long after that, the Quarrymen covered it in their first recording. Yay. And you can also hear it on the Beatles anthology. So quite a, um, a song that songwriters obviously like as well, if they're covering it like that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And they obviously had a big knock-on effect on the Beatles who we spoke about last week's show. Huh. Um, the Beatles at the time, the lineup was John, Paul, George and Stuart Sutcliffe. Ringo wasn't in the band yet. Um, the bass player was still Stuart Sutcliffe during their Hamburg days. They were all massive Buddy Holly fans and they were trying to come up with a new name. Uh, prior to the Beatles, they were obviously known as the Quarrymen um, because that was the name of the school they went to. Um, but they weren't best sure about if it was the right thing to stick with long term. And they liked Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And that made them think about insects and then Beatles. And then eventually, as several variations, they called themselves the Beatles. Um, they, they liked the idea of it being an insect, but also having the word beat in it was one of the things John Lennon liked about it. And he called right. the music beat music at times as well. So the Beatles just worked creepy crawlies, insects, and the beat. So mm. without Buddy Holly, you probably wouldn't have the Beatles and our. You wouldn't have the Beatles called the Beatles anyway. Aye, they might, they might not have been called that. Aye, they would have still been some sort of band, you'd imagine. It was kind of like, like b- before Buddy Holly came along, a, a lot of like pop music and songwriting were basically <laughs> separated. You know, separate businesses. You know, you had composers that would craft the tunes in New York. Yeah. And then performers picked from among those songs to record to sing in concert, basically. But Holly and the Crickets wrote most of their own material back in the day, which didn't go unnoticed to the next generation of rock and rollers, basically, again. The Beatles and stuff like that. Um, we've got Bruce Eder here from the Billboard.com. He wrote the fact that the group relied on originals for their singles made them unique and put them years ahead of their time. Um, noting that the group's first three big kicks, that'll be the day Old Boy and Peggy Sue were all originals. A stark contrast to Elvis, who did not write his own songs. Yeah. This was quite an interesting one actually because I've always like everybody knows the next song basically, but it's good to get a wee bit of story about it, Colin. So um, I found this, I found this one of the most interesting wee bits about Buddy Holly. So yeah, the widowed bride, which is referenced in Don McLean's American Pie, was Buddy Holly's wife. Um, that song, obviously, American Pie, is all about that plane crash that happened, 
Um, and he, when he sings, I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. That was really hard to see without singing it, by the way. Yeah, um, I, like, <laughs> I just never knew it was about Buddy Holly's. Did you know it was about Buddy Holly's wife? Hi, it's me, Jack, your favourite host of Wrong Term Memory, giving you an update on our Patreon. We now offer a £1 a month service at wrongtermmemory.com. No, that's not right. At patreon.com forward slash wrongtermmemory. May as well just leave that in. Yeah, fuck it. We've also reduced the price of our top tiers by a pound a month as well. So head on over to our Patreon and get bonus episodes and early access ad-free episodes. You won't need to listen to this. Absolute travesty again. No, I knew it was about a plane crash. I didn't know it was about Buddy, but I didn't know it was about Buddy Holly um, and her finding that he was dead. Um, the the bride was Maria Elena, Elena Holly, uh, who'd wed just two weeks after meeting her at a music publisher in New York, where she worked. She was pregnant when he died, um, but she suffered a miscarriage a few days later. Um, Santiago Holly still controls much of the continuing business related to his music, but she doesn't own the songs. They're all held by Paul McCartney now. Um, in 2009, she said she liked American Pie, but she disagreed with its central premise. Uh, Buddy might not be here anymore, but the music did not die, she said. It's still alive, and it's very well. That's it, that's it. Um, uh, Buddy Holly. Where we going next? Jerry Lee Lewis, again. Um, Great Balls of Fire, probably his most famous song. He it's, was born. It's the one that came to mind for me straight away, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's the one that everybody knows, basically. Again, he was... He was born into poverty, but his family were very poor. And he, again, he, he sort of first, again, a sort of common story here is showing an interest in somebody else's piano or a borrowed piano. This was his uncle's piano at the age of eight. Um, his father at the time, who was a bit of a muppet, uh, Elmo, had to mortgage the family's shack to buy <laughs> uh, Jerry Lee uh, an upright stack at the time. So, again, seems like families wanting the best for their kids. Uh, the first song he mastered was Silent Night. In a boogie woogie style, but so he's putting a little bit of style on it. Um, usually, uh, this again, I'm reading this verbatim, he was colourblind. Um, ah, of course he was. <laughs> he, uh, he would sneak into the, the nightclub uh, in the black part of Ferrydale, uh, Ferry Day, sorry, called Henry's Big House. Oh, Haney's Big House, sorry. He would hide behind the bar and hear people like BB King, Muddy Waters, and his absolute favourite was Ray Charles. Um, and like so many other southern boys, he was blown away by Elvis Presley and spotted an opportunity. And in late 1956, uh, Elmo um, sold 33 dozen eggs, um, so whatever 33 times 12 is, to finance a trip to Memphis, where Jerry Lee would successfully audition for Sam Phillips and Son Records, basically. Tragedy struck Lewis's life early and often, though, when he was just three, his older brother Elmo Jr. was struck and killed by a drunk driver. And it was a shame because Elmo was just beginning to show some musical premise, I promise, when that happened. Mm-hmm. His tragic passing was just the first of many car wrecks in Lewis's life. Uh, once while visiting his parents back home in Faraday, he was, ripping around, he was ripping around the local streets at 80 miles an hour when disaster struck. A horse suddenly appeared in the road in front of him. Um, unable to get out of the way, he ducked down in his seat and prepared for the worst. He hit the horse dead on, totaling the car and, hill- and killing the horse. Um, I, I was. We, we, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but we were at the football on Sunday, and mm-hmm. I was in the car with David and a few other guys recording the car pod for Heart and Hand, 
and we get interrupted during the car pod by four police horses walking past us while we were while we were in the car. The noise of them, and then look, see, and I know we always talk about how big horses are, Jack. But see, when you're sat in a car, like sat down, looking up at them, oh. they just seemed even bigger, like huge. So see the idea of driving my car into one of those. I'm surprised he's still here. Maybe what I'm surprised he survived it. That's it. Like he remained mostly famous for the life that he sort of briefly read between fifty-seven and fifty-eight when he got to hang out like the MGN, like Elizabeth Taylor, who he said, "I ain't seen a woman that beautiful in my life." Um, he would leave Liberace speechless. Um, he couldn't believe anyone, not even Jerry Lee Lewis, could play piano that fast, that well, and sing at the same time. Liberace thought there had to be another piano hidden in the wings because um, he was playing it that fast. But this fame didn't last, basically, because after his British tour was abandoned in 1958, basically because the tabloids done a little bit of digging, they didn't dig so deep in the Everly Brothers, but they decided this this foreigner was getting um, <laughs> dug into um, that he'd married his underage cousin, <laughs> which oh, seems to be a common thing back in the day, though. Myra, um, and he told the American press it didn't really matter. Um, and that thousands of students cheered in London and there was nothing to apologise for. Um, basically, because he was such a cocky dickhead, he got boycotted by TV, radio and concert promoters in the UK um, for being for being a fanny, basically. So, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, his flame, his star burned brightly for um, a couple of years in 57, 58 and then sort of got forgot about for being uh, a, a non-sir, basically. As that so many of them happen to be. Yeah, the next one's the biggest nonsense out, man. Hey, listen, yeah, okay. But not, I, I, do, I do I do <laughs> love this guy. Like right. we're gonna talk about Elvis. Mm-hmm. Um I've loved this guy for years, Jack. Like if you ask me like who my top five artists are, Elvis is usually in it. Um okay. he's like the Beatles in that regard, in that I listen to a lot of Elvis, then I maybe don't listen to him at all for a year or so, then I get right back into him again. Um, he's just brilliant. Like, there's an Elvis recording of Old MacDonald at a farm. Right, right? okay. <laughs> and it's genuinely the, one of the best things he's ever here right. because, like, he, he changes some of the words to for quack quack there and a quack quack here uh, or a moo moo here and a moo moo here. Hamburgers medium rare. <laughs> Stuff like that. Like, right. he's he's just brilliant, mate, honestly. Right. And his songs are just so, so good. Um, I went and saw his film recently and even though Tom Hanks was in it, I still enjoyed it. That's how good Elvis is. Right, fair enough, but he did meet his first wife when she was 14. He did, yeah, he did. Um, Priscilla, he she was 14. Uh, he was in the army and he was serving in Germany in 1959 and he was 24 years of age at the time. Um, the, the relationship was illegal um, and it didn't stop him from making advances, sadly. And I think they were writing to each other during his time away and all that sort of stuff, like after he met her, before he went. Um, there was a gap, I think, between them seeing each other face to face between 1959 and 1962. But they were writing to each other, they were talking on the phone and all that sort of stuff. And he married her when she was 22 in 1967. Throughout the relationship, he was promiscuous. He was never exclusive to her. And it eventually led to the divorce finally in 1973. But they did meet at a dubious, a very dubious age. I like, and it wasn't like this. This wasn't just a one-off. You know, there was quite a lot of underage girls involved in Elvis's life. 
um, especially at the height of his fame. Um, I don't know who's written this article, but they've written, he abused his power to manipulate young, impressionable fans whenever he went on tour, basically. And Joel Williamson, I presume this is the guy that wrote the author of Elvis Presley, A Southern Life, um, claimed that two years before Elvis met his future wife, he took a group of three 14-year-old girls with him on tour um, who were up for pillow fights, tickling, kissing and cuddling. Um, and elsewhere in this book, he claims that Presley had a 15-year-old girlfriend when he was 19 and the singer was obsessed by virginity. There you are. Mm. So... You'd imagine this guy's done some research into it and not just making these things up, you know? Yes, absolutely. And listen, there's probably something to it. Um, I kind of, I really like his music and think he's cool, so I want to just believe it's not true, but chances are it probably it's, is. There's other elements of truth to it, for sure. that we spoke about before, the separation, uh, you, I, I believe you can do it. And yeah. If you like Elvis music, you like his music, you don't, doesn't mean you think it's cool to shag 14 year olds. You know what I mean? So. Yes, well, speaking as a man with a, a Morrissey tattoo on my left arm and a Kanye West tattoo on my right arm, Jack, <laughs> I, I very much I very much have to separate the art from the, the person. So, yeah. Um, he also liked guns. He was obsessed with guns, Elvis. He had loads and loads of them. And yeah. he once actually fired a gun at his fiance. Um, again, this, this is written in quite a negative way. Elvis was a, a manipulator who had extremely controlling streaks to his behavioural patterns and he could get violent. He met Ginger Alden when she was 20 and he was 41. Uh, she was a beauty pageant queen uh, who hoped to make his wife, but the relationship was a little bit problematic and his treatment of her was horrifying. The, care, the pair constantly argued during their time together and after one row, he allegedly asked one of his aides to pop the tyres on her car so that she couldn't leave the house. And on another occasion, when she drove away after a fight, it's claimed that he fired gunshots after her. Uh, they were engaged to be married, but the relationship never ever made it to the actual wedding day. Yeah, that is it. But, yeah, it's, whoever's written this article doesn't like Elvis. Like we, we can see doesn't. that, and there probably is reason to because um, it seems to be um, that he would drug Priscilla as well. So it wasn't just Alden that was manipulated. There's lots of reports. Um, again, you've got to think that this guy's not just like listen to one story, he's like corroborated his evidence basically. But there's there's reports that Elvis would uh, drug Priscilla uh, with, with speed and vitamins basically to keep her awake during sex, um, mammoth sex sessions. Um, allegedly, <laughs> see the word allegedly in there's just always. Just means you can say anything you like. It's basically just a little bit kicker. Um, yeah. Allegedly, he was an alien that came from Mars and he had seven heads. Yeah, and he was also introduced to speed in the army. And he became addicted to the drugs, uh, and they later grabbed control of his life. And then, supposedly, again, allegedly, during these drugged-up sex marathons with Priscilla, Elvis took photographs in a Polaroid camera, which was stored in a silver suitcase delivered to Priscilla after his death, years after the divorce. <laughs> what a dick, man. Um, and then, uh, allegations of racism, mate, we so... Um, you take this one, and then we'll move on to the my, my two favourites, uh, James Brown and Little Richard. <laughs> Yes, there was allegations of racism um, earlier. It came from Quincy Jones, um, a guy that actually watched a thing about today, funnily enough, about him working with Michael Jackson. Mm. Um, he reviewed that he used to he refused to work with Elvis because he was a racist. He said, no, I wouldn't work with him. I was writing for orchestra leader Tommy Dorsey oh, back in the 50s. Elvis came in and Tommy said, I don't want to play with him. He was a racist motherfucker. Uh, and Quincy Jones said, you know what, I'm going to shut up now and didn't say anything else. Um Meanwhile, public enemies fight the power lyric and quotes the lyric, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Straight up racist, that sucker was simple and plain. 
Um, there's no cement evidence that Elvis was a racist. He undeniably appreciated, uh, appropriated black culture and then repackaged it to the general public. Um, but the racism in American society generally allowed him to have such a fruitful career and it was certainly something he leaned into, be it consciously or unconsciously. Um, that Quincy Jones thing, Jack, that I saw today was really interesting. We saw about Michael Jackson, how Michael Jackson used to send him notes on how to produce his music. And okay. you know that song, Don't Stop to Get Enough, where it starts at the start? Yeah. Um, he, uh, Michael Jackson told Quincy Jones to remove that bit from the start of the song because he felt it took away from his voice. And Quincy Jones said to him, no, <laughs> I'm not doing it. And basically said, if you want me to remove stuff, I'll just stop working with you. Right. And Quincy Jones won that fight. And now it's one of the most kind of iconic Michael Jackson bits of music ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the first I'd seen Quincy Jones talking. He's such a cool guy. Oh, I've never, I've never heard him talk or seen him talk or anything like that. I know Michael Jackson. I don't think, I don't think he could play instruments, but he would do all the stuff with his voice and his hands and stuff like that. So he'd go, like, yeah. Oh, it shouldn't be that. It should be or whatever, yeah. like, and just do it super with his voice. Uh, super talented, but he like can actually play the stuff. But uh, good on Quincy Jones for telling Michael Jackson to shut the fuck up. Um, James Brown. Now everybody knows James Brown. I think was mental. Um, sort of like funk and soul music, really, sort of famous for that, high energy performances against powerful vocal sets and again sort of set the standard for a lot of artists that followed him. But he was mental. Um, There was a big, like, there was screeds of pages on the internet about how mental James Brown was and I tried to pull together five or six things that I didn't know about him. So hopefully you didn't know about him neither. Um... So we'll just take these one at a time, as always. So he pulled out, yeah. a, he pulled out a gun, basically, during an insurance seminar um, <laughs> while he was on probation in September 1988. He, like, just randomly went into an insurance seminar in Georgia. Um, he didn't go there to, <laughs> to learn about insurance. Basically, he had no stake in the company or anything like that. Just walked in, but he was high in PCP, <laughs> and he had a shotgun and a pistol. Help. And he basically ordered everyone out of the room and then just jumped in his pickup truck and drove away with police in hot pursuit, basically. So, uh, yeah, PCP seems to be a bit of a kicker in his life. Um, <laughs> just a bit. Yeah, because uh, he's, the next story involves PCP and his wife. <laughs> yeah, so his third wife, um, which is always a great sentence, um, fed him creamed corn laced with PCP. <laughs> Um, he, by all accounts, had an intense, tumultuous relationship with his third wife, Adrian Lois Rodriguez. She was a hairstylist that they met, um, and they married quickly. Um, PCP was a massive part <laughs> of the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> hell. And they enabled each other's addictions to a ludicrous degree. Um, a member of his kitchen staff even claimed that Rodriguez put PCP into his creamed corn and his coffee ice cream. And Brown himself claimed that Rodriguez stabbed one of his mistresses in the arse. <laughs> Oh, what a relationship that is, mama. You're just taking PCP 24 hours a day and your missus is stabbing <laughs> your mistress. <laughs> he allegedly, again, there's that word again, shot uh, six or seven people during a feud with a fellow singer. Um, the path to the top of the charts is uh, hard and is littered with collateral damage from bitter rivalries, as the rap game can attest to. Uh, one of James Brown's earliest public enemies was an R&B singer named Joe Tex, both <laughs> men were signed to King Records at the time, but they also had to compete for stage time and record sales over the time. Their animosity crossed uh, the border from professional to personal, basically. Um, they made covers of the exact same songs like Baby You're Right and Brown allegedly stole Tex's ex-wife, B. Ford. And naturally, this led Tex to release uh, the disc record, You Keeper. 
where any calls out Brown by name. So this records were going on back in the 60s Fucking as well. Man. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? I never even knew that. That's news to me. Um, things came to head at a venue called Club 15 in Georgia in 1963. Um, Tex had basically teased Brown about his signature cape because he used to wear a cape. <laughs> I love that man, just stick a cape on. <laughs> uh, during a gig earlier that day and mocking Brown's performance and pretending to get tangled in the garment. So he was taking the pish man saying, look at you, you mad kimp. Um, but the godfather of soul, um, as his nickname um, has grown over the years, shot, fuck that, and pulled out two shotguns. <laughs> yeah, not one shotgun, two shotguns. <laughs> and he just opened fire, basically, on his rival and allegedly shooting six or seven people <laughs> in the process. Just, like, nobody was nobody was murdered. Nobody was actually killed. Um, Brown took off, um, and members of the security team stayed behind to hand out $100 bills to the injured for their silence. And he was never prosecuted for years, basically. <laughs> so he just shot people and gave them a couple of hundred dollars to shut the fuck up. That's, That's amazing. It's mad, isn't it? It's good. Um, yeah. Um, he got a 16-year prison sentence um, when he was only 15 years old. He wasn't really looked after as a child and as a teenager. And he stole when he couldn't find odd jobs to supplement his income. And at 15, he was arrested for stealing from parked cars. Um, he received an 8- to 16-year stretch for the crime, but he honed his performance skills while incarcerated. People loved hearing him sing in the jail so much that his nickname in the jail was Music Box and the warden and the parole board were so impressed by his good attitude they actually released him from his sentence, Jack, after only three years. Yeah, to be fair, she's stealing from a parked car. I don't think you should be getting a 16-year jail sentence for it, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that's a bit steep, but... Um, it depends if you might feel differently if it was your car, but yeah, in theory, I guess. Even then, so. man, see if somebody stole something at my motor, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be calling for an 18 year sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you stole my phone, get in jail for 20 years. No, um, he loved his dog, Pudgy, and held a funeral for Pudgy the dog. Um, loved his little poodle mix. Uh, the singer was devastated when his mate <laughs> accidentally hit Pudgy with a door. <laughs> And cracked the dog's skull. How hard was she opening the fucking door? <laughs> she's done that on purpose, man. Because poodle mixes can be little pains in the arse. So she's definitely murdered. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing at that. It's just, it's just, always, it's just always death, man. Like always. Um, so he, he was so sad, but he held an elaborate, full scale funeral for the dog at his home in Georgia. Um, Pudgy was laid to rest in a white casket, and Brown supposedly. <laughs> Cried through the entire fucking hell. <laughs> oh, um, I'm, I'm obviously not laughing at the dead dog, but it's just the image of this full blown funeral and me Pucci in a wee white <laughs> casket, man. <laughs> oh, and it gets um, even worse after he dies, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, in post mortem, his legs were amputated. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny as well. Basically, he, he died in Christmas in 2006, but his drama of his life didn't end there. There was a massive battle over his fortune that ensued between his children, his ex-wives, and his widow, Tommy Ray. Uh, Ray was the mother of his youngest child, but Brown hadn't the chance to change his will to include her or their son before he died. Um, during this kind of legal battle, the singer's body was moved 14 times. Um, the family even demanded a paternity suit to prove the heritage of Brown's youngest son. And because the singer was already embalmed, the godfather's legs had to be amputated to extract bone marrow for a proper DNA reading. It turned out the boy was his son, but the will dispute carried on well into the next decade. Mm-hmm. Chop <laughs> somebody's legs off, man. Did you check? Please, your dad. That's <laughs> mad. Right. Uh, little Richard, we'll get to. 
again, you, you will notice like there's a lot of <laughs> because I use chat AI to write a bit of this, <laughs> so you will notice there's a lot of the same sort of stuff in here, which is uh, known for his high energy performances and fly from point <laughs> stage presence. He was one of the first inductees in 1986. He was a major force in the early days of rock and roll with hit songs such as Tutti Fruity and Long Tall Sally, which helped define the genre, right? Um, but um, he had an audio with Buddy Holly, maybe, right? So. Um, in 1985, there was a book released called The Life and Times of Little Richard, which was an authorised biography written by historian Charles White, a.k.a. Dr. Rock, right? right. So, <laughs> and this is when uh, Richard describes a 1950s escapade, <laughs> I love that word, uh, with his long-time stripper friend Lee Angel uh, and budding star Buddy Holly, right? So I'm just reading from what Little Richard said, basically. <laughs> uh, one time, one time, Buddy came into my dressing room while I was jacking off with Angel sucking my titty. <laughs> Angel had the fastest tongue in the West. She was doing that to me and Buddy took out his thing. She opened up her legs and he put it in her. He was having sex with Angel. I was jacking off and Angel was sucking me. We then introduced uh, his name and stage. <laughs> he finished off and went to the stage still fastening himself up. I'll never forget that. He came and he went. <laughs> quite literally. Yeah. Yeah, quite literally, Buddy Holly came and went. But Lee Angel has disputed this account. And in GQ in 2010, she said, I knew Buddy, but I didn't know Buddy that well. So, again, disputed whether or not um, Little Richard had a, had a threesome with Buddy Holly and Angel. But I'd like to think he did. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a nice story, isn't it? It's um, he was also into voyeurism. And it got me into trouble a couple of times, that, that yeah. particular kink. Um, in 1955, he got caught in a car watching a couple go at it, and he spent three days in jail for it. Um, in 1984, he told Rolling Stone that he'd also oversee his bandmates during their orgies. I used to like watch these people having sex with my bandmen. They should have called me Richard the Watcher, he said. Like, he's so open about it, you know, this guy. You should be in jail, mate. <laughs> like, we've spoken about this before, where people just, like... Rolling Stone interviews would basically tell people how much of a psychopath or how much of a sex pest they were and nothing would get done about it. Um, anyway, he would send people his own shit as well, basically. <laughs> um, he would take a shit in a box um, and give it to people as a present. Uh, he did it to his own mother for some reason, <laughs> as well as an elderly female neighbour. Um, she wanted to know what I'd brought her. Um, she said, so let's see what Richards had brought for me. Then I just heard, ah, ah, I'm going to kill him. I'll kill him. He recounted in that book that we're speaking about as well. So, yeah, just give his mum a bit of shit in the box. <laughs> for some bizarre fucking, fucking reason, man. That's mental. Yeah. Um, he developed, I think we all know, a massive, massive drug problem. Uh, early career, teetotaler. However, he got into the world of alcohol and drugs uh, with the same gusto as he did his music. Mm -hmm. He started getting involved in marijuana, cocaine, PCP, heroin, and LSD. He was said to be blowing up to $1,000 a day in coke. Yeah. Um, he said, when, and I think about that and the money now, probably a hell of a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, he said when he blew his nose, blood and flesh would come out on his handkerchief. Um, he said after professional setbacks and personal tragedies, including the loss of his brother from a heart attack in the 70s, he eventually got clean, right? So if he's doing a thousand pound of coke a day prior to the 70s, Jack, that's that's Scarface stuff. That's quantities of a huge amount. 
Yeah, that's probably when cocaine was much better. And it's, I, I use better in inverted commas, like it wasn't cut as much and stuff like that back then. Purer would be the, the better word for it. Aye, no better. <laughs> it was dead good back then. Um, when it wasn't cut as much. Yeah. Before it was council. Before it was council, basically, yeah. Um, finally, his biggest hit was almost certainly about anal sex. Um, finally, we have to note the lore. So this is lore surrounding Tutti Frutti. His 1955 career-defining hit originally included these lyrics. Tutti Frutti, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. Good booty was eventually changed to all rooty, which is slang for all right. Um, but the telling of the song's origins almost always refer to the song being about some backdoor action. Um, Dorothy uh, Labastry was one of the listed co-writers later said she came up with the lyrics based on the name of an ice cream flavour, but given everything else we know about Richard's pro uh, proactivities, it's hard to imagine rock and roll staple having such innocent origins. So yeah, it's about anal sex and not about uh, ice cream, we, we seem to think there. So... Oh, what a way to end the show. Yes. <laughs> what a way to end the show. And like I says, if you go to the wrong term memory website, you can read all about all this in, in detail basically and watch some watch some videos um from from all the guys that we've mentioned. So um I enjoyed this two part of Colin. It was good to get our teeth into some something a little bit of history, but no no black and white well, some black and white stuff, but you know what I mean, no like really, really black and white stuff. There was yeah, actual cameras back then. <laughs> Yes, if there's cameras and photos, I don't mind it too much. I prefer it when they're HD, but it's okay. And I prefer history when it's about pop culture people rather than folk that did battles and that. So, yes, this was good. Right, okay. Um, As always, guys, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Bye.